Radio. This is your host, McKay Rippey, and with me in the studio is our producer, Aurora. Hello. And today we've got for you episode 18 and a very special guest, Sarah Ballantyne. Uh, she burst onto the paleo scene a few years ago and really brought a whole nev- a whole nother level of understanding to nutrition with her autoimmune protocol. And I think it has particular uh, relevance to Lyme disease because there's so many things that can influence your health. And if your gut's a little bit off and you're eating few foods that are going to irritate you and cause more inflammation with the underlying Lyme disease, it's just going to make things worse. So this is a real important interview, and I know you're going to get a lot out of it. Aurora, tell us all about Sarah. Okay. Sarah Ballantyne, PhD, is the blogger behind the award-winning blog, The Paleo Mom. After her second daughter was born, Sarah discovered the paleo lifestyle. It had an amazing effect on her health, including contributing to her 120-pound weight loss. Over time, she healed herself of a long laundry list of physical complaints, including irritable bowel syndrome, acid reflux, migraines, anxiety, asthma, allergies, psoriasis, and an autoimmune skin condition called lichen planus. In fact, Sarah was able to continue six prescription medications, some of which she had been taking for 12 years within two weeks of changing her diet. Sarah is passionate about scientific literacy and about distilling scientific concepts into straightforward and accessible explanations. As a scientist, both by training and by nature, Sarah is deeply interested in understanding how the foods we eat interact with our gut barriers, immune systems, and hormones to influence health. Thanks, Rora. And here's our interview with Sarah Ballantyne. Sarah, I remember when you burst onto the scene and is it seven years ago, 10 years ago? When did Not even started? three years ago. No way. Yeah. You, you seem like just I, one of I, the cornerstones of the paleo world now. Well, thank you. Um, it has been quite a, quite a amazing journey. And I really did go from, you know, complete no name to, um, you know, you know, probably one of the, you know, top 10, you know, most recognizable names in paleo in a very short period of time. I like to think that's because um, people really connect with the types of things I'm talking about and, and the way that I talk about them. I have to be honest with you. The the thing that connected me first with you was the cartoons. <laughs> And for those, of, for those of you who don't know, she has little cartoons of herself and various things all over her blog and Facebook posts. You have to check them out. Now, I have to know, do you draw those yourself? I do draw them myself, yes. They're adorable. Thank you. I I don't know what inspired me to go with stick figure style. Um, I've drawn just as a hobby for most of my life, and I actually at one point took you know, life drawing lessons just as a, you know, for fun. Actually, during my uh, first postdoctoral research fellowship, it was sort of how I um, unwound. And I had this, like, one three-hour-long life drawing class 
every Tuesday evening, and it was the only day that I would spend less than 12 hours at the lab. Wow. I had to leave early enough to go to this life-drawing class. And so it's always been something that's been like a really rewarding hobby for me. It was really, I think, neat for me to be able to find a way to incorporate, you know, for me, the blog incorporates most of my interests. So I get my geeky science um, stuff, you know, really well. Um, you know, I, I really get to enjoy that. But then I also get to, to do cooking and I get to do drawing and I get to do photography and if I can figure out how to uh, how to add more music into it, I think I'll have everything. <laughs> okay, the singing blogger or something. Well, de- <laughs> yeah, definitely have the right brain and left brain thing going. It's it's. Um, thank you. Yeah, I I I've always been. I mean, they're basically interests that I've always had that I've managed to to find a way to all combine in in one place, which I think. You know, it makes me very, very fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, so I'm going to – I have a bunch of leading questions that I'm kind of going to tee up and, and let you talk about because I, I think you have something very specific to offer the Lyme community uh, in, in terms of diet and really what you've done with your autoimmune protocol. And sure. So and, – and you got started with this from personal experience, right? Yes. I have, well, three autoimmune diseases. Um, the, the skin condition that I have called lichen planus was my, you know, frustration that had me seeking for answers that eventually brought me to the paleo diet in the first place. And, for um, and then folks, also, yeah, for folks who don't know, what exactly is that? Lichen planus is um, a form of, uh, it's sort of related to psoriasis, but it's in a deeper layer of the skin. It's actually in the skin mucosa. Um, and it is characterized by raised sort of uh, very deep red, sometimes even purplish red um, lesions that can get quite scaly and flaky. They're quite painful and itchy, um, typically very sensitive. And stereotypically appear predominantly on the ankles and wrists, although there's forms of lichen planus that can um, happen in, in other parts of the body. And um, what's really disconcerting about lichen planus is because it is uh, an autoimmune disease that attacks the skin mucosa, there's some concepts within the scientific literature that it may affect other mucosal barriers. For example, the lung mucosa, and I actually developed the skin condition at the same time as I developed adult onset asthma. And I've often wondered if it wasn't really asthma, but uh, lichen planus attacking my lungs as well. It's not an experiment I can ever realistically do, so I'll, I'll have to just live and, and wonder. Um, but also, there's some idea that um, people can have lesions in their gut mucosa as well, which would then, um, whenever you have an autoimmune disease that attacks the tissues of the gut, you have this extra barrier to healing because it affects absorption of nutrients. And so, um, and so it's, um, you know, really, it's it's very similar to psoriasis, but it does have these sort of extra complicating factors that that go along with it. I also actually had psoriasis as well, um, and was also diagnosed with early rheumatoid arthritis. That's a handful. It is. But it's actually very common for people with autoimmune diseases 
to um, have more than one or to to you know develop more than one. They they say uh, once you have an autoimmune disease, expect a new one every ten years. And I don't know how well solidified that is in the, the scientific literature. It's just I think it's, it's more of a sort of a, a medical old wives tale, if if you will. But it is very very common for people with autoimmune diseases to just all right now I have this one, and it really makes a lot of sense when you think about what what's driving autoimmune disease is um, not just the body sort of learning to attack itself, um, but it's it's the uh, complete breakdown of all of the fail-safe mechanisms that are supposed to control that. So, you know, everybody's body will at some point in their lives accidentally create an antibody that targets their own tissues. And what separates somebody with autoimmune disease versus somebody without it is that we have this series of fail-safe mechanisms in place in our immune systems to make sure that when that accident happens, that we control it. We kill the cells that are producing those antibodies or we find some way to make them dormant. Um, And we have all these regulatory mechanisms in place. What happens in autoimmune disease is they fail. So the body can continue to produce, you know, these antibodies that target your own tissue. And then you also have some trigger or something that's stimulating the immune system to attack. And that those, those things happen in all autoimmune diseases. And the thing that separates one autoimmune disease from another is just exactly which tissue is being targeted. And so once the immune system breaks down to that point, it's just a question of when the next accident of targeting some different tissue is going to happen. Um, and then you'll have another autoimmune disease. And so really in that, in that sense, when you understand that that's an accident that happens in every person's body, it's just a matter of time before it happens again, once you have an autoimmune disease. Okay, so that's I've, that's very interesting that that part of the immunity because really my familiarity with what you're talking about stems more from gut permeability mm-hmm. and how well, they're, they're quite linked. Yeah, so explain that to me. Yeah, so um, what we know from the medical research in autoimmune disease is that a leaky gut is present in every autoimmune disease in which we've looked for it. Um, Similarly, gut dysbiosis, where you have the wrong types or numbers or variety of bacteria in the wrong part of the digestive tract, has been found in every autoimmune disease in which we've looked for it. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about the immune system because roughly 80% of the immune system is housed in the gut. And this is really important because um, the gut is such a a unique barrier in our body. So it's it's a barrier between the outside of the body and our inside of the body, um, as is our skin or our lungs or our, our sinuses. Um, but it has this extra job that our skin, for example, doesn't have, which is to absorb nutrients. So it has to be a semi-permeable barrier and a selectively semi-permeable barrier permeable barrier. So it has the job of knowing when to absorb amino acids, essential fatty acids, uh, monosaccharides, vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients. It has to know when to absorb those and leave everything else out. And there's a lot of everything else that's in the digestive tract. There's partially digested food, there's bacteria, there's bacterial waste products, um, there's 
um, that's one of the ways that our um, body eliminates toxins. So when the liver is doing its detoxification job, one of the places it puts the byproducts of detoxification is into the bile. So that's um, secreted into the intestine in order to be eliminated. So we don't want to reabsorb those, um, those, those, you know, toxic byproducts that our liver has already worked so hard to get rid of. And so what happens when you have a, a leaky gut, which can come from a variety of different sources, it can come from stress, it can come from infection, it can come from diet. Um, when you have a leaky gut, you end up sort of allowing things like bacteria, bacteria fragments as, as, I mean, we have a lot of dead bacteria in our digestive tract. They have their sort of normal life cycle and that's what stool is predominantly made up of. It's about 80% dead bacteria. So bacterial fragments, bacterial, um, toxic by bacterial byproducts will have, um, uh, undigested food or, or, you know, like partially digested foods. So that means that you're starting to look at not amino acids, but maybe protein fragments or intact protein. And you, you know, you create an environment where some of those substances, you know, the smaller ones, the leaky gut's not giant holes in your gut, it's little tiny micro holes. Right. But it allows bigger things into the body than are supposed to come into the body. Right. And the immune system is there. 80% of the immune system is there because it's, it's really sort of the, typical place of first attack of any pathogen. And so that's why our immune system is there. It's there to, you know, be a, a vigilant sentinel to protect us against infection. But so what happens is if you get, you know, just random, you know, toxins or bacterial byproducts or undigested proteins into the, uh, into the body, those are still stimulatory for the immune system. And so for um, many people with autoimmune disease, at least, you know, this is at least the current, you know, one of the current going hypotheses within autoimmune disease research is that a leaky gut may actually be um, a prerequisite for autoimmune disease to develop because it actually ends up providing the stimulation. So you already have the accident of an antibody being produced that recognizes the human body. You have some kind of either nutritional deficiency or perhaps a genetic mutation that makes the fail-safe fail, and then you have the stimulation for the immune system attack, and that stimulation may always, or at least we know in um, in many cases, come can come from a leaky gut. The leaky gut. Okay. Now here, you may not know the answer to this, but so that I've heard that eighty percent figure before in terms of the immune yeah. system. So is that 80% of the white blood cells, 80% of the function? What exactly? 80% of it's what? Eight, it's 80% of the lymphatic tissue. Ah, so that, okay. So that includes things like lymph nodes, lymphatic vessels, um, all of the lymphocytes that are housed within those lymphatic vessels and lymph nodes. Okay, so if some is that that's one reason why we can feel so lousy when we have the flu, right? If our lymph is swelling, our guts can be really swelling up too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about how um, the um, you can you'll feel with a, with a good flu, you'll feel like your armpits will be tender or your groin will be tender with swollen lymph nodes. Yeah. You know, if you can think about that that sort of experience. 
um, then definitely that can be, you know, sort. I mean, it's definitely a source of just that overall achy feeling, but definitely can be, it's, it's probably a player in, it's not the only player in um, the stomach upset that can go with the right. food, but that's definitely probably part of it. How about that? So, and here, here's the tie-in for, for Lyme disease. So, you know, most Lyme patients with chronic Lyme have been on multiple rounds of antibiotics and sometimes over expense, ex- extensive periods of time or strong antibiotics such as IV and then really stomach upsetting ones like doxycycline. You talk to people who've been on doxycycline mm-hmm. and they're just, it, some of them can't even tolerate it because it makes their stomachs and intestines so sore. So you get to this point where in fact, by treating the disease, you have to damage your gut, which then sets you up for all this autoimmune stuff. If you're saying if the deck's already stacked in that direction anyway, so it's just a Lyme disease person can be just a hot intestinal mess. Yeah, so it's a really interesting double-edged sword because there's actually now a, a growing list of autoimmune diseases where the source of the autoimmune disease is infectious, um, or at least it's part of the trigger. It might be um, an infectious organism in conjunction with a certain genetic predisposition. So can we know you, that can there's you give certain, an example of that? Yeah, so we know that there's certain gene mutations to the um, human leukocyte antigen gene, or the HLA gene, that um, will it, um, actually predispose you to different autoimmune diseases depending on the specific infection you get. So for example, um, now I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna have to make sure that I'm getting all my my actual pairs correct, but the um, B27 uh, variant of the HLA gene, um, when you get um, I believe it's uh, microplasma pneumonia, I believe that has a really high correlation to ankylosing spondylitis. And then with a uh, parasite, then it has a really high correlation with rheumatoid arthritis. So it has that actually that particular gene is probably best um, best studied in terms of um, certain infections, specifically increasing risk for different autoimmune diseases. And it, it's definitely I might actually have those backwards. It might be the other way around. But um, but it's. We won't, uh, we really won't hold you to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So please, you know, uh, feel free to fact check that one because I might have it backwards. Um, but what's really interesting is that a lot of the gene mutations that we know about now, um, autoimmune disease is not a genetic disease in the sense that it's not, you know, one gene or one small handful of genes that if you have those, then you're going to get the disease. So it's not like cystic fibrosis. It's not like even like hereditary breast cancer in that sense. Um, but what it, we know is that there's a collection of genes and you can have mutations in uh, any sort of random, you know, uh, handful of them and that will increase your risk for autoimmune disease. So it doesn't even, you can have those um, gene mutations and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't doom you to autoimmune disease. It just increases your risk. And what's interesting is one of the the genes that we understand the most about is the human leukocyte antigen gene. And that's because um, that gene 
actually codes for the protein. It's called the major histocompatibility complex. And it is on the surface of, um, of uh, specific types of white blood cells, um, that actually it's like the flagpole. Mm-hmm. So what happens is when these uh, white blood cells eat some kind of foreign invader, part of that foreign invader's protein is actually retained and it's inserted into the major histocompatibility complex. And that's like the flag. So the MHC is like the flag pulled. You put this flag on and then those cells come and sort of bring that message to the rest of the immune system and says, hey, look what I found. Right. And so when there's something wrong with the flagpole, then you can't raise the flag. And so then you can't alert the rest of the immune system. Uh-huh. And so that we actually know quite a few variants of that particular gene increase your your um, predisposition to autoimmune disease. So we know there's some variants um, are very highly uh, correlated with celiac disease, for example. Um, but really, you know, in terms of these genes that increase your predisposition to autoimmune disease, um, we probably understand the, the, you know, just the very tip of the iceberg um, because it's also autoimmune disease is very complex. So it's not just a genetic predisposition, but nutrient deficiencies almost certainly play um, an extremely important role in their development because of just how uh, the immune system is a nutrient hog. You know, it really requires <laughs> a large number of different nutrients um, and quite a lot of nutrients in order to function normally. So here, here's and, the, can, yeah, can I interrupt here? So one of the things I've noticed in my acupuncture practice, I test blood sugar fairly frequently with my patients, mm-hmm. and it seems to be with myself and with them, when they're sick, their blood sugar increases. Do you, do you know, this has been always been in the back of my mind, you're being so scientific and well-read and knowledgeable, might know this. Does the immune system eat sugar? Does it need sugar to function, or can it function off ketones or other fuel sources? It can function off other fuel sources. Okay. Um, what I imagine is – so what's interesting is, is that um, a lot of hormones that affect metabolism, for example, insulin, are actually also immune-regulating hormones. Oh, okay. And so uh, and what's not really very well understood is how the immune system – plays back. So we, we have a fairly good understanding of how hormones like insulin and leptin and ghrelin all affect the immune system, mm-hmm. but we don't know very well how the feedback goes the other direction, except that we do know that an activated immune system can suppress neurotransmitters, which can then affect insulin sensitivity. So if you have a lot of inflammation, you're not producing as much serotonin, for example, and then a depressed serotonin can end up causing um, insulin resistance. So there may be some like, you know, A to B to C that's going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that we know is that um, when you have a lot of inflammation, it's a stress response. And when you have a stress response, you have food cravings typically for high food reward foods, mm-hmm. which are very energy dense. So it may actually even be that feeling sick is leading people to make poor food choices. Huh. And that that's actually, it's, 
it's more they, of a direct link between carbohydrate intake and, and insulin resistance. They don't call it comfort food for nothing, right? They don't. You know what's <laughs> fascinating? This is one of those like scary, um, you know, research findings from a, um, like I find it fascinating, but at the same time, the implications are, are fairly big is that they have found in animal studies when they, um, you know, subject animals to stress, which is kind of a hard um, study to, to set up, but they, they find ways. And um, they give these animals the choice of you know, high-fat diet, high-carbohydrate diet, or their normal diet. The animals will preferentially either choose high-fat or high-carbohydrate. Hmm. Um, and when they get to eat either a high-fat or high-carbohydrate diet compared to their normal diet, they are protected against the... Uh, neurological symptoms from chronic stress. No kidding. So uh, the mice will actually not be not be exhibiting the physical signs of stress. They won't have the behaviors that mice have in captivity when they're stressed out. And it's interesting when you think of um, our tendency to overeat when mm-hmm. we're stressed. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that, that may actually be helping to protect our brain. <laughs> from the neurophysiologic effects of stress while, you know, having a pretty steep price to pay in terms of our health in general. I find that I find that same mechanism in play with my patients who have trouble giving up smoking. So it's might, that might go into the same pathway. It's like, unless I can get underneath and take away the pathophysiology that's, their main problem, they can't give up smoking. They can get to a certain point and then their life or their health falls apart. So that's, well, that, that's fascinating. With, yeah. It makes sense with any behavior that we use to calm ourselves down. Yeah. Right. I think that when you're talking about overeating in that context, you're talking about comfort, comfort eating, comfort food, yeah. stress eating. And, um, and I would think that you would have a very similar reaction to alcohol with alcoholics, mm-hmm. right? It's, um, it's generally a, um, a habit that we've acquired, uh, in order to deal with, you know, some psychological stressors yeah. in our life. Let me step on some toes here and say exercise. Exercise is fantastic. Um, I've seen not only because well, you in, ter- in terms of that it just substitutes as an yeah as an addiction to handle stress, over exercising. Well, you can have exercise addiction, and what's really interesting about exercise addiction um, is that it can actually cause a leaky gut. You're kidding. So, how does I'm it do not, that? Uh, so, um, strenuous exercise causes a leaky gut through uh, a direct action on the tight junctions between the gut epithelial cells that's mediated by heat shock protein. So, and there you go. I'm like talking to an encyclopedia again. <laughs> so <laughs> That's why we love you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I actually um, just gave a talk about this at um, the Ancestral Health Symposium, and that talk is actually available on YouTube. Um, my talk was called, um, do, do you remember, Autoimmune Disease and Lifestyle. It's um, not all about what you eat, but it's still in your gut. Right. And um, what I actually did was I sort of broke down exactly how stress causes a leaky gut, exactly how 
um, inadequate sleep causes leaky gut, and exactly how overtraining causes a leaky gut. Isn't that And um, it has this direct, the direct impact on the um, the way that the junctions between the cells that form um, the entire lining of the small intestine has a direct interaction on how those cells link to each other, and it actually unravels the links to be able to open up spaces so between them. Yeah. In addition to having a stress response. So in, in addition, there's, right. there's a, it, it stimulates um, cortisol secretion, which also has the exact same you know, effect. Whether or not it's additive, I haven't seen any papers that have, have investigated that. Um, but so it has these, you know, it has a stress response and then it has a direct response on, um, on the, the integrity of the gut barrier and directly causes a leaky gut. So and any strenuous, high-intensity activity does that, um, which is one of the reasons why I think when people first start an exercise program and first, you know, they jump in, like, too much too fast, mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons why people tend to feel so crummy. And um, and so it, then it becomes like, well, what is too much? And it's a completely <laughs> individual answer, right? Because yeah. it completely depends on how Absolutely. well managed your stress is, how good your sleep is, how nutrient-dense your diet is, yep. um, and then what your gut health already is and how fit you are. Like, what are you coming from? Yep. And I think it's one of the things that people find the most frustrating because it's so important to be active. And it's... You know, it's really important to you know, have more muscle. It's really important to um, move your body. Like these things have so many health benefits, and they have definitely health benefits from the perspective of regulating the immune system. But there's a line. It's a, it's called a U-shaped curve. Yes. So you know, too low, and you have negative you know health effects, and then too high, you have negative health effects. And finding the middle can be really challenging for people. It it absolutely can, and. Uh... Although I'm geeking out and could probably talk to you about this for another half an hour, I have to reel, <laughs> reel myself back in here for, and not, not, uh, throw you a, a bone about more exer- exercise questions. Um, so to bring this all back, we've talked about very specific, uh, immune responses. We've talked about very specific gene alterations or mutations, or maybe they turn on and off or whatever's going on deep within inside our cells, but you bring this all back to what you throw in the pot and cook and that you can, it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to understand all this stuff, but you, you can drive your nutritional bus and get yourself a lot better, right? I mean, you, you're tremendously more healthy than you were however long ago it was when you were really suffering. Oh my goodness. Yeah, night night and day. And you did that by just changing how you ate. Changed how I ate. Um, I also continue to work on prioritizing sleep and stress management and activity and getting in that that right zone. Um, but for me, I think the the most important thing was figuring out um, the really really complex world of not just diet triggers of, of inflammation and um, poor gut health. So we've, we've starting to learn now in the medical literature that there's a variety of foods that can negatively impact the health of the gut and um, can negatively impact what type of bacteria are growing there or that are pro-inflammatory. But it also involved really figuring out nutrient density because 
you know, as I started to say earlier, the immune system is a nutrient hog. And in order to have an immune system that's able to regulate itself, and that's what you need with an autoimmune disease because it's, it's overstimulated. So you need the regulatory mechanisms to kick back in to rein in the entire immune system. And in order to do that, you need um, nutrients. And there's some, some vitamins and minerals in particular that are very deficient in the typical Western diet that um, are essential for the immune system to regulate itself. So I think there's, there's two sides to the um, diet for autoimmune disease coin, which one side is get rid of things that are um, contributing to the problem. But the other one is like support healing and support the, the immune system being able to regulate itself, provide the building blocks for your tissues to repair themselves. And, um, and I really think that when we're talking about autoimmune disease, you really need equal emphasis on, on both of those aspects of diet. Um, and of course, you know, my foray into this, um, started with discovering a, a paleo diet. And I actually discovered it, you know, doing an internet search, looking for a solution for my autoimmune disease, which started to flare when my youngest daughter nightweaned. So I went through this hormone shift and suddenly, um, these lesions that had always been present on my ankles and wrists, but had sort of gotten to sort of a homeostasis point, and I would slather spirits on them twice a day, and they were fine. They just started to grow. Um, they got incredibly painful and itchy despite steroid use, and then I started to get new lesions up my legs and up my arms. I started to get lesions on my torso. Oh, no. And one of the things about this autoimmune disease, besides the fact that it's painful, is that it's a very, it's visible. Yeah, it's it's very visible. And so for me, this was what launched me into my, um, my really complete change in approach to, um, diet and nutrition. It start, I started to really think about diet differently than just eating energy to sustain life. If you eat lots of energy, you get fat. If you don't eat as much energy, lose weight. Right. Um, and I started thinking about it in terms of nutrition. And, um, and so this was the, the, um, you know, understanding the science behind the paleo diet was where I started as I tried to then form a template for people with autoimmune disease. And, um, and I started to get into some other foods that are typically included in a paleo diet, for example, tomatoes and other members of the nightshade family, so tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, chilies. Yep. And these have um, really immune, like really potent immune stimulating compounds. Yep. There are two different compounds in tomatoes that have been investigated for use as adjuvants in vaccines. So they are so good at stimulating the immune system that um, pharmaceutical companies have looked at if we isolate it and stick in the vaccine, is that going to make the vaccine work better? And um, for a normal, healthy person who you know has nutrient density, diet and has low stress, that's probably not such a big deal to have some foods that are like that in your diet. But for somebody with an overstimulated immune system, with a genetic predisposition to an overstimulated immune system, almost certainly nutrient deficiencies, the, the medical research is just, um, it's just packed with papers showing nutrient deficiencies in autoimmune disease, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them. And um, basically every nutrient that we know that has a role in the immune system, we know is deficient in one autoimmune disease or another. And so um, 
And so it becomes um, something that if you have if you have a nutrient-dense diet, you have those nutrients, your immune system is fairly well regulated, you may be able to tolerate some inflammatory foods if your diet overall is not particularly inflammatory. But with autoimmune disease, for me, it is my biggest trigger. Um, tomatoes? Uh, tomatoes in particular. Yeah. Tomatoes, absolutely. Um, and, I mean, it's also extremely common for people with autoimmune diseases to be um, extremely gluten and dairy intolerant, and I definitely am. But I recover much, much faster after an accidental exposure to gluten or to dairy than I do from an accidental exposure to tomatoes. And how about vegetable oils like soy? How do you react to those? Do you find those inflammatory? Um, I do, but again, my diet overall is so incredibly balanced between omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids and omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty Mm -hmm. acids that I tolerate omega-6, uh, high omega-6 fatty acid foods on occasion Yep. Okay. fairly well. So that, They'll right. make me feel a little bit crummy, but it's, it's, for me though, I have, I actually had my omega-3 to omega-6 ratio in my um, red blood cell cell membrane tested. No kidding. And it was almost perfectly 50-50. It was the highest omega-3 to omega-6 ratio that my functional medicine doctor had ever had seen. Ever seen. Yeah. In any patient, including the ones that are retesting after therapeutic doses of fish oil. Yeah. And I don't take fish oil. It's all from food. Yeah. Fish. I'm, I was high on fish oil for a while, but I think like so many other things, how it's processed now may be mm-hmm. not as good as we need it to be. So. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the research on fish oil shows great benefits for short term. Yeah. For therapeutic use to, to get that balance back. Um, but because they're such fragile fats right. and depending on the brand we're using, they can be oxidized over the long term, they may actually be inflammatory because you're consuming oxidized fat. Yeah. But over the short term, if you, in your body, you have a really skewed ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s, um, they may be really useful for, for balancing that really quickly. Okay. Well, that's helpful. So almost like taking a Tylenol for inflammation. Um, I don't, I, yeah, and it didn't mean it actually has the same mechanism, but in that, yeah, a short term usage, you're not going to take Tylenol short, the rest of your life. You're going to yeah, take it to that's right. so help for, balance for things back. Short term use for, for the fish oil supplements is usually considered daily for four to six weeks. Yeah. Um, and then that's what's considered short term. Now I've been, used, uh, I've been using, um, green pastures, the f- fermented mm-hmm. cod liver oil and, on and off, mostly because I forget and or, or have a little temper tantrum about the taste from time to time. But I, uh, my, my daughter, I've started giving it to my daughter and she has some mood imbalances where she gets grumpy mm-hmm. and it, it has absolutely leveled those out. We can tell when she's missed taking her fish oil for the day as her, her little face gets into a frown. Well, she's not so little anymore, but. <laughs> So with What's with something about fermented fermented fish oil is it's not just the omega threes but that it's, it's right. basically a fat soluble vitamin supplement. Yes. And then what's interesting is because it's fermented, then you would have all the products of fermentation in it. And we know we don't really know what's in fermented cod liver oil in terms of products of fermentation, but if you look at products of fermentation in like fermented foods, for mm-hmm. example. 
you know, a lot of those products are short-chain fatty acids, which are phenomenally important for neural health. Right. So that that makes sense. We have, it's funny, we have a small, we, my father-in-law does all the work, have a small herd. We have 10 cows on our property. And I was flabbergasted to find out that at the end of the digestive cycle in the cows, what they're doing is they're fermenting the grass that they eat into short-chain fatty acids. So actually the cows are eating basically a fat-based diet. It just starts out at grass. (laughs) And and it really emphasizes just how important having the right type of bacteria in our digestive tracts are because if they didn't have all of the, I think it's Firmicutes, um file of bacteria in their yes. um, digestive tracts, if they didn't have, you know, three stomachs and, and huge long intestines full of Firmicutes to basically turn grass into short-chain fatty acids for them, they wouldn't be able to survive. And we're very similar, although we, we're adapted to an omnivorous diet, but we need, um, you know, this variety of different types of bacteria that grow in our digestive systems. And we know that they're really important for regulating the gut barrier. And we know they're really important for regulating the immune system. And then we don't actually really understand much more than that. There's 35,000 different species of microorganisms that are normal residents of the human gut. Each one of us has 500 to 1,000 of different species. And we probably understand like what three dozen of them actually do. Yes. Um, so our, our understanding of that is, is so, um, it, it's just the, the tiniest, tiniest tip of the iceberg. But I think that's actually where a lot of really interesting research is being done right now is in the gut microbiome. And I think that there's going to be some really interesting insights coming out of that research over the next couple of decades. Well, you are the tip of the spear pointing us in that direction. That's for sure. Well, I, I think of myself now, I mean, I was a medical researcher and I was actually doing research. Um, and then because my health was so bad when my, when my daughter was born, I decided to um, take a break and be a stay-at-home mom and really focus on one thing at a time. And now I kind of have fallen into this position of, I consider it almost like science translator. Yes. So I can read the research that's being done and I geek out over it and get really, really excited, but then be able to bring that to people in an actionable way. So explain what it is, what it is that we know and what this implies for the best choices in terms of diet or the best choices in terms of lifestyle um, or other sort of, ta- you know, tangible things that we can actually do as a result of that information. And that's, Kind of a cool, a cool job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you and you made it up. That's the really cool thing. I just, I just, and I not even intentionally. It just kind of happened by accident, which yeah. is even better. I mean, I really just started a blog because I needed an outlet for my enthusiasm. I never had any inkling or or even um, desire for it to become um, a huge resource that it's become. But um, it's been, it's been really fun. It's been a definitely a steep learning curve, but it's been really fun to sort of watch that grow and, and see my ability to educate people. And it's very, very rewarding. I really, really enjoy it. Yeah, well, you do a fabulous job. So let me bring this all home like this. Uh, so, Somebody has Lyme disease. 
the Lyme is affecting their immune system and down-regulating it. They probably have some type of co-infection that either came along with the tick uh, or something in their environment, uh, either externally like mold or internally like uh, a latent herpes or, or Epstein-Barr virus that's starts taking hold. They start feeling terrible. They're taking all these drugs. Now their digestion is completely messed up and maybe they're heading toward an autoimmune type event. How, how should these people should be eating? What, what's the steps that they should take the first beginning steps to start turning their diet around from the normal quote unquote, even healthy diet or even the normal uh, American diet, which we all know ain't so healthy. Yeah, so I I typically recommend, um, so let's talk about the goal first, because then once people understand what the goal diet is, then they can figure out exactly how they're going to get there, because there's no rule saying that you have to just wake up tomorrow morning and start eating this new diet, um, because it can sound very overwhelming. But um, if you can't tell, <laughs> the, these all come from our scientific understanding of how foods interact with the human body and the importance of nutrients for regulating the immune system. So first and foremost is a focus on the most nutrient-dense foods available in our food system, which is organ meat, seafood, all kinds of seafoods, that's fish, shellfish, and um, sea vegetables, like seaweed, and vegetables. And that should become, um, if not the, the basis of the diet, it should still become daily foods and, and vegetables should be eaten um, plentifully because not only are they full of vitamins and minerals and antioxidants, but they also help restore the right type of um, microorganisms living in our gut. So then the, the next foods to sort of fill that in would be other high quality meat and uh, some fruit. And, um, and that is, that is the goal. It's a, it's a very, simple diet and depending on where people come from, they might all of a sudden go with like, wait a minute, you didn't say whole wheat bread and you didn't say <laughs> I get to eat cheese. Um, and so the, the next, you know, the other flip side of the coin is getting rid of foods that are inflammatory. And so that includes all grains, um, you know, wheat, uh, you know, products that contain gluten and wheat being the most inflammatory and definitely the, the first to target is if you want to take this in baby steps, um, that means getting rid of all dairy. Um, there may be some room for playing with high quality dairy later on. So, you know, grass fed butter, um, grass fed, you know, homemade yogurt, those types of foods. But later on, um, you really need to um, get that out of your system for a while before you can really know how you're responding to it. It means getting rid of all legumes. It means getting rid of nightshades. Um, it means getting rid of eggs for now. Um, and eggs are, again, you know, especially high-quality, you know, farm-fresh, pasture-raised eggs um, are definitely something to play with later. But, again, you kind of have to get it out of your system for now. It means um, getting rid of all nuts and seeds, again, for now. Um, nuts and seeds are hard to digest. They're hard on a, a, a um, fragile sort of digestive tract. Um, they're also really high in omega-6 fats, and they can be inflammatory, and they're also really high um, food sensitivity foods. So the percentage of people that are having food sensitivity reactions to them are really high. 
So you get rid of um, and you're giving up alcohol, and uh, you really should give up coffee because coffee can be quite inflammatory. Um, and so uh, that's why I started with the foods that you get to eat rather <laughs> than the list of, of not. But this is really, you know, this is a therapeutic diet, and um, when and it's extremely effective because it gets rid of you know, everything that has the capacity to be inflammatory or um, irritating to the lining of the gut or feed different kind of bacteria in the gut while focusing on the things that we're missing when we follow a sort of standard, um, you know, American diet. So it's focusing on much more nutrients, um, much more, um, you know, both animal and plant-based nutrients, it's focusing on uh, much more prebiotics for food for our um, gut microbiome, um, and it's it's really focusing on a variety of food. So you know, within those categories, seeking out the most variety we can, the highest quality that we can uh, source, and that is accessible in terms of of budget as well. And um, it's phenomenally effective, not just for um, people with Lyme, but any autoimmune and immune condition, because what it does is that it stops the stimulation of your immune system. It allows your gut to heal while providing the nutrients that your immune system needs to regulate itself and the nutrients that your body needs to heal damaged tissue. And when your immune system is functioning well, it can handle those um, persistent infections. It can handle those latent infections. And that doesn't mean that this diet is necessarily going to be a substitute for other medical-based strategies for, for dealing with Lyme, but that in conjunction with those other strategies, um, that it can be extremely powerful. And for some people, it may be the missing piece, you know, that they've gone through all of the other um, treatments that are available. And this focus on, you know, immune regulating nutrients, this focus on gut health, this focus on hormone regulation that comes from making these particular choices of foods is really like what helps them recover. And I've you heard some people who've been diagnosed with Lyme who have used this approach and it's made all the difference in the world to their health. That's fantastic. And it makes so much sense also if you're not healthy enough to run your immune system. You know, if you've run out of credit on your immune system and you're, you're, you're broke, your immune system is That's broke. That's a great analogy. Right. Yeah. Then you can put all the antibiotics in the world, but once you remove the antibiotics and you can't live on antibiotics because they will eventually destroy you, if we've all seen that happen, then it's just a matter of time before you relapse, right? And it's just bouncing exactly. back and yeah, forth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is, this is, you know, getting back, you know, the reason why we need antibiotics is because the job is too big for our immune systems. And sometimes that's the pathogen. Sometimes it's just that bad of a disease that we have that we need to use this, you know, wonderful tool that antibiotics are. Right. Um, but, but sometimes it's because of all of the other things that's going on with contemporary society that is stressing out our immune systems and not allowing our immune systems to actually function normally. And that's what, you know, all of these recommendations are geared towards is supporting a, a body that is actually operating the way it's supposed to operate and, and getting rid of all of these, you know, un unfortunate, you know, many of these things are convenient of the 
you know, contemporary society, but they're also hindrances to our bodies to being optimally healthy. Yeah. So, so beautifully stated. Thank you so much. You've been very, very generous with your time. I really appreciate it, Sarah. Friendly reminder that nutrition is really important. Yeah, Sarah really brings that to light and explains it in a very understandable way, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. All right. If you have feedback for us, please send us an email. At feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Please like us on Facebook. And visit our website for links and show notes at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And to not miss an episode, make sure you get it delivered right to your iPhone. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Just search for Lime Ninja Radio. Or, and Stitcher. Don't forget to, don't forget we are also on Stitcher. Right. For those of you folks who don't have an iPhone, you can get us on Stitcher as well. And check back for us. We have a special podcast coming out this Friday, a special Halloween podcast. I interviewed an author. Uh, M.M. Dryman, who has a book out that links Lyme disease and the witch burnings in Salem. So happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. (laughs) So it'll be ready for you to download and you can uh, plug in while you're carrying your little ghouls from uh, house to house and they're collecting all that sugar. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Wait, I almost forgot the Lyme Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas can light a fire by rubbing two ice cubes together? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.